Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk Podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed Conference. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Zamir Punja. Zamir is a professor of plant biotechnology at Simon Fraser University in Canada. His research interests include the etiology and management of plant diseases on vegetable and horticultural crops and the applications of biotechnology for disease management. Since 2018, his work has shifted to researching on cannabis, where his group has described a range of previously unreported pathogens affecting the crop and has evaluated various methods of disease management. Zamir's latest research has been focused on a pathogen that is spreading throughout cannabis cultivation facilities worldwide, hoplatent viroid. HLVD, as it's also called, is a relatively new pathogen. It was first identified in hops in the late 80s and was just detected in cannabis in 2018. It is also quite small, only 40 nanometers in size. Still, in just five years, this tiny pathogen has managed to infect as much as 90% of cannabis facilities in California alone, all while reducing yields as much as 50% and costing the industry $4 billion in losses. Zamir shared his latest research on HLVD at CanMed 23, which is the basis of our conversation today. I've put a link to his video presentation in the show description. Our conversation covers why Zamir considers HLVD to be the COVID of cannabis, how HLVD spreads, the effect HLVD has on cannabis plants, including some really amazing electron microscope images that he captured of affected trichomes, practical recommendations for testing plants for HLVD, and possible solutions to the HLVD problem. Before we get to my conversation with Zamir, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Pheno Express. Pheno Express offers low-cost genetic testing services to cultivation facilities. Using qPCR technology, Pheno Express helps cultivators identify genetic traits, such as plant sex, while plants are still in the seedling tray. They can also identify plant pathogens, such as hoplatent viroid, lettuce chlorosis virus, and powdery mildew, before the plants show obvious signs of infection. Contact Pheno Express today so they can help you predict, prevent, and eliminate major crop problems before they happen. Learn more at phenoexpress.com. That's P-H-E-N-O-X-P-R-E-S-S dot com. Okay, and without any further ado, Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Zamir Punja. Good afternoon, Zamir. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again. Thanks, Ben. Good to see you. Excellent. I'm excited to talk with you today about a topic that everyone seems to be talking about, and that's hoplatent viroid. Uh, if you're watching or listening and you're not familiar with HLVD, 
Well, you're in the right place because Zamir has done extensive research into the viroid, much of which he shared at CAMED 23 in his presentation. I'll put the link to that video in the show description so you can check that out. But today, not only are we going to cover what HLVD is, but also talk about ways to potentially prevent and or eliminate it. So let's get into it. Now, Zamir, at CAMED 23, you called hoplatin viroid the COVID of cannabis, which does have a nice ring to it. And I think it's a good way to describe what is going on in the cannabis industry for those who might not be familiar. So please explain why you believe HLVD to be the COVID of cannabis. Well, I, I thought that throw that in because there's a lot of similarities, you know, between um, what we've experienced with COVID over the last three years and what's happening with the cannabis industry. Um, first of all, these are both organisms that uh, one's a one's a virus, which is the COVID, and the other one's a viroid. Uh, but they behave very similarly. Uh, all the literature shows that viruses and viroids behave in a very similar manner. So that was one obvious thing that that was. Um, draw my attention to the fact that there are there are many similarities the other being it spreads really easily by hand and we know with covid you know wash your hands make sure you don't touch surfaces and and when you when you blow your nose make sure you throw away the tissues and so on and so forth so any material that comes into contact with your hands that has hop latent infected material like sap is going to transmit it so that was another analogy that i thought was was pretty pretty interesting um, and also it spreads really well, uh, both COVID and, and um, the hop latent. Now, I should make a distinction here that it that hop latent does not spread in the air. Mm. Uh, I've seen some reports where people say, oh, yeah, it's airborne. You got to watch your vents. It doesn't spread in the air. Now, oh, it'll it'll spread through seed, obviously. And, and if there's pollen, the pollen will fertilize. But in, in a general operation where you're growing plants, mothers, flowers, um, you, you don't have to worry about the airborne uh, aspect of, of hop latent. Now, unlike um, COVID, of course, where we develop vaccines, uh, we don't have vaccines for, for hop latent. We've got to develop some other methods to, to address it. Um, and the other one of the other main differences, which I think is important, in COVID, as you remember, we were getting a lot of mutations, right? New strains were coming up all the time, and they had to develop new vaccines for that. Right now, with hop latent, we haven't seen a lot of genetic diversity. In other words, it looks like the, the first report in California, that, that genetic strain that was there is very similar to one in Massachusetts, is similar mm -hmm. to the one in Colorado. We've actually found it in Canada. So it, it almost looks like right now anyway, it's genetically, uh, you know, fairly stable. It, it's not diverged itself as much. Um, what that's due to, maybe with, with more selection pressure, you know, in, in the human population, there's so much diversity, people react differently. And so the, the virus is constantly trying to keep up. Uh, maybe in, in the cannabis world, it, it's perhaps not the same. The other thing uh, with COVID and, and hop latent, the symptoms, right? You know, you've had people that are asymptomless with COVID. Right. They, they test positive, but no fever, no no runny nose, no sneezing. And in, in cannabis, it's the same thing. Uh, you have these asymptomatic plants that unless you do a, a PCR test, which we'll get into later, you may or may not know that you've got hop latent because the plants may not show any symptoms. So there's a there's a ton of similarities um, between the two types of diseases. I just I just wish we had the kind of money that was thrown at COVID, <laughs> thrown thrown at us in in cannabis. Because I tell you, if we did that, we'd be done in a year. Like we'd have all the problems solved. Because you need money for research, and uh, that's that's getting pretty tight. 
Yeah, for sure. And there were a few things that you mentioned in there that that I jotted down that you know might might be kind of news to me because I know that there has been some discussion and debate about whether HLVD actually spreads through seed. So it seemed like you were just saying that yes, it does. So um, yeah, there's some pretty good evidence that uh, Tumi Genomics um, re released and shared with us, as well as work that they did with Texas A&M, um, and they you know they they did two things: they took infected mothers. Um, and added pollen from that was clean from a clean plant, and they found that a high proportion of seeds that came out of that were were had hop latent. And we'll talk about on the outside versus the inside. Right. Uh, and then and then they took a, a healthy mother, and then they took pollen from an infected male, and put that onto the plant. And again, they got seeds that that had hop latent. The infected females um, that received healthy male pollen had a higher seed infection frequency. So the mother's being infected is more important than than, than the father uh, being infected or the pollen. Hmm. And a lot of the um, contamination or, or hop lane was on the outside, on the seed coat, which is very common with, with many viruses. But they, they, they did show uh, maybe 10, 15% infection inside the seed, where they did experiments where they totally cleaned the outside of the seed to the point where the seed was pretty much killed. And then they rescued the tissues from inside and ran a PCR on it, and it was positive. So it's both outside and inside, and infected mothers play a more important role than, than infected pollen. So now if you did have a seed that had the viroid on the outside, and maybe not in the inside, but you didn't clean it, disinfect it, or whatever, and were to plant that seed, could it infect the, the plant that emerges? It could in, in cases where the seed coat, you know, was still attached to the to the cotyledon coming out. Right. So you've got the plant that's growing and, and there's some abrasion uh, against the cotyledon. You could get transmission there through mechanical mechanical damage. Um, and, and really the only way to know for sure, obviously, would be to test that seedling. So, you know, you've got five seeds, really, you know, high priced seeds and you've grown them up and you've got these five seedlings. I'd test every one of them just to be sure because that's a great point where hop latent can start and you want to eliminate that option. So um, testing seedlings, we'll talk about what the right stage of testing would be, but I would say the best way is really just to test to make sure. Excellent. Um, and just to kind of complete, I guess, setting the stage for, you know, people who might not be familiar with hop latent viroid, we talked about, you know, how it's, how it's spreading and its similarities to COVID, but what is it actually doing to the plant? How, you know, what are the symptoms sort of, why is this such an issue with cultivators? Right, right. So, you know, when the first discovery of hop latent was made, it was made in hops. And this was back in about 88. And so the, 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 the researchers figured out what the sequence of the viroid was. And they didn't see any symptoms on the plant. And when they tried to transmit it to other plants, they didn't see anything happen. So they gave it the name hop latent. So the word latent mm -hmm. basically means no symptoms. And, and again, with COVID, you could be infected, but be latent, right? You, you, you're harboring the, vir the virus, it's in you, but the, the PCR tests are showing it's there, but you're not, you're not expressing symptoms. Um, so that's where the latent comes in. But then later at some point, and usually it's when the plants go into flower, um, that we see the most dramatic symptoms. That, that's where I first recognized it when I looked at a flowering plant and it was much shorter, um, the flowers weren't developed as well, the, sort of the, the dudding symptom, the, the flowers were smaller. And these are the same symptoms that the California researchers in the two different labs reported. That's how they first saw hop latent viroid was on these flowering plants. And then when 
you measure THC and CBD and terpenes and so on, what you find out is that they've dropped. Uh, they've dropped depending on the, the genetics of the plant and when the plant got infected, anywhere from 10 to 40% lower. And that's when the alarm bells start going off, right? You've got this infection that came literally out of nowhere because they hadn't seen it before, but it showed up on the flowering plants. Now, when you work backwards, you can see symptoms uh, in mothers. Uh, you can get mother plants that are uh, somewhat stunted. You can see symptoms in the veg, particularly depending on the susceptibility of, of the genotype you're working with. I've seen stunted plants in veg that are obviously hoplate infected. Mm. The leaves are slightly curled. Um, but I wouldn't rely on symptomology alone. I, I would definitely uh, do the testing to make sure. But the, the, the alarm bells go off when you're walking through a flowering room and you're looking at the plants and you recognize that, that genotype, but yet you're looking at it and saying, these flowers haven't developed. They're smaller. They're, they look like they're, they're like two weeks behind. Mm. That's when, when you may understand that you've got um, hop laden. Excellent. So now you mentioned hops and obviously it's in the name there. So it makes sense that it started there, but did I hear that right? Where hop latent viroid never really had a negative effect on, on hops, like any variety. Yeah. So when they first started, they didn't see, see an effect, but then like as research shows, as you, the more you look into it, the more you find uh, other labs started looking at it, particularly in Europe, in Germany and other countries. And they started to see, and in the UK, they started to see, um, the, the, the cones, you know, the flowers, uh, the end, end result of the flowers and, and hops are called cones. The cones had lower um, acids and and, uh, and, yeah. and phenolics and other chemicals that uh, essential oils and terpenes that are used to help, you know, enhance the flavor of beer and, and so on. They were starting to see lower, lower quantities of that. The plant itself was not affected. Uh, if you've ever seen a hop plant, that thing it grows in front of your eyes. I mean, it, it's putting on 12, 14 inches of growth a day. So it's unlikely hop latent does much on that, but it did seem to affect the flowers. And that, when I read that report, I thought, okay, if this is happening in hops, it's got to happen in cannabis because they both have similar flowering structures and so on. And so now they're finding, but it's, it's very genotype dependent. Depending on the cultivar, some of them seem to be fine. They, they resist the virus or the viroid. And others really come down uh, hard. And again, I, I draw the analogy to COVID. Some people get it and they're walking away fine and others have to be sent to the ER. And a part of it is what your genetic constitution or background is that, that makes the difference. Yeah, and, and so has that been the way that the hop industry has sort of dealt with the issue? They've sort of just moved towards using uh, cultivars that are more tolerant of it? They've done that, and, and they're aware that it's spread by, by mechanical transmission. So in hops, where they use machines to maybe prune the plants or they take cuttings, they're very careful to, to know that you know it's spread, it's spread that way uh, through the sap, which is useful information because the exact same thing happens in cannabis. Mm. When you take cuttings and you, you make vegetative plants out of, the, out of the original plant, or you're using shears or tools that, that weren't necessarily cleaned properly, that will spread uh, hop latent. And that's what they found in in, uh, in hops as well. They didn't see very high transmission um, in seed. It was there, maybe five to 8%, um, not as high as what we're seeing in cannabis, but it may be that the female plant, the mother plant wasn't as heavily infected. And so there was you know, a little bit of infection, but it wasn't enough to create a very high seed transmission rate as we see in, in, uh, in cannabis. 
Yeah. And you mentioned too, that when you were explaining some of the differences between HLVD and COVID, that the number of different variants didn't seem to be apparent in HLVD. Now, when it when the viroid jumped from cannab from hops to cannabis, was there a change there, or is it effectively the same viroid? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the sequences that we have, and, and the ones that Kevin McKernan has looked at at medicinal genomics, they're, they're identical to the 1988 report um, on on hops, and so there doesn't seem to have been a significant amount of change, at least in in the genetic structure. Now, some of the papers I read on other viroids, there's about 32 other viroids in other plants, like potato spindle tuber viroid, they see a lot of genetic diversity. And part of it is when, when the viroid is moving from host to host. Hmm. So potato spindle tuber viroid has a big host range, you know, tobacco, tomato, petunia, lots of plants. And, and they were able to show as it moves into these other hosts, I guess it, it needs to adapt itself uh, to this new environment and, and sure. creates a new, a, new, a new strain or a new variant. And, and that could be what's happening in humans, right? When it jumps from China to India to, to America, it's mutating as it goes through. You know, we all have different genetic backgrounds, genetic composition, and we're somehow selecting more variants uh, in, in, uh, in COVID. So far, knock on wood, we haven't seen that with, with Hop League. Yeah, because could that be more of a problem if it were to start doing that? It would be, because all of a sudden you've got, you think you've got this genetic strain that's resistant and now you've got a new variant right. that is more aggressive more aggressive again very similar to to what we see in covid and that's where these vaccine companies are making a fortune because i mean this year again you know i already got my little reminder that i've got to go for my whatever it is fourth or fifth uh vaccine booster they're going to develop another one a different uh booster for covid because they say the strain has changed since last year so they're continuously trying to keep up with with this evolution so you mentioned too, so HLVD, it seems to be a relatively new phenomenon uh, that we're seeing here. Um, but I wonder, because you've studied a lot of different pathogens in cannabis, has it been around longer than maybe we know of and we just were not aware of it? Like, were you looking at yeah. plants um, and kind of expecting to find one pathogen and not finding it and being like, hmm, this doesn't make sense. And now that you know about HLVD, now it kind of, the picture is clear. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, the more you look, the more you find, right? But prior to 2018, which is when I started my work, uh, there were no reports of hop latent. And, and part of it was because it hadn't been discovered, it hadn't been tested. And hence the two reports out of California in 2019, they published in 2019, but the plants were sampled back in 2018. I think it's been around, um, I can't say how long, I, mm -hmm. I would guess maybe five to eight years. Somehow it, it migrated over from hops, clearly, somebody was working with hops and maybe had sap on their fingers or something happened where uh, it was then moved over into a cannabis production facility. But it's probably been around, I don't know, eight, five to eight years. And because it hasn't been recognized, we weren't really looking for it. If I saw a stunted plant, I would look, oh, that's probably fusarium or, or pythium, right. uh, not even knowing what hop latent is. When they first mentioned it to me in uh, 2018, I go, ah, oh, don't worry about it. It only affects hops. It's latent. And that's a mistake that everybody makes initially. And then we realize, my goodness, this, this organism is very well adapted to infect cannabis and, and cause damage. Right. And now part of your presentation at CAMED too, you shared some really kind of stunning images 
that you captured with an electron microscope and and you know with regular photography too. But I think the the ones in in, in particular where you're looking at the trichomes are 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 cool to to look at. And if I'm going to try to share my screen now, we could kind of take a look at those and and show the folks. Uh, if you bear with me for one second. Yeah. So I guess while we're waiting, I, I can explain the scanning electron microscope is, is a very, very powerful uh, piece of equipment that magnifies things tremendously in, in, the, in the magnitude of thousands. And so when you look at uh, trichomes, as, as we see here now, um, you can see these at this magnification. You could probably see this with, with a high uh, magnified hand lens or even under a dissecting microscope. So uh, even though this is under a scanning, this kind of thing, I think you can see uh, with with a, a normal microscope. So on on the on the left side there, you've got the normal stalks and the the large you know uh, glands or bulbs at the top of the of the stalks. And over on the right, um, you can see that they're smaller. They're 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 there, but they're smaller, and they look they look like they're not as well developed. Now the numbers are the same. That this is what surprised me as well. When you look at numbers, you actually sit and count these little dots. Mm -hmm. They're equal numbers on both sides. So when people say, oh, well, the trichome numbers are down, they're not actually down. They're, they haven't developed as well. They're they're underdeveloped because of this infection. Yeah, and of course, the trichomes them themselves, like that's where the plant produces the cannabinoids and, and terpenes and everything, correct? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is why uh, the industry uh, is doing what it's doing, is to collect all of the... the cannabinoids and, and uh, THC and other things that are called resin from these from these glands. And so anything that disrupts the development of these glands or makes them smaller or, or um, a poor quality, then that's going to affect the ultimate amount of THC and, and CBD and, and so on that you have. So what, when one looks at that, it's basically the, the plant is under some kind of stress, right? It's supporting the reproduction of this viroid, which by the way, it's producing millions and millions of copies of itself in the cell, in the, in the plant cell. It, it has no other way of replicating. Again, similar to COVID, COVID has mechanisms to replicate in humans, but it still takes a toll, right? People that suffer from an infection with COVID are, are in bed for six or eight days. They're weak, they, they, they've lost appetite and so on. In the plant, this thing is taking energy out of the plant by, by making millions of copies. And so, uh, Partly, I think it's it's the stress level on the plant, and partly it may also be that the the viroid is actually shutting down parts of that pathway that produce these cannabinoids. We don't know for sure. Um, there's a lot of research labs doing this kind of study right now to find out what exactly is being turned off in these infected plants. And I bet you, a lot of the um, the genes that are involved in cannabinoid synthesis are also turned off or or downregulated, which would also explain why we're seeing um, this reduced this reduced um, cannabinoids. Now, it's not just cannabinoids. We see plants turning yellow, which mm -hmm. means they're lower in, in, in a chlorophyll. We see plants that are stunted, which means there's less growth in the, in the apical meristem. So there's other things that happen in, in, in these plants. So there's a really good example of a particular uh, strain or genotype that is very distinct. I look at that and go, boy, that's hop latent. Sure enough, every one of those is infected. And you, you can sort of see fewer trichomes on those surrounding leaves or bracts. And then you've got less chlorophyll, which is, again, uh, another effect of this viroid. Right. No, and I, I did want to get to 
to these because I think this is some of the most striking images. I mean, that looks like a, a deflated balloon. Yeah, yeah. And th this is, I really was happy to get this, or at least the student, the graduate student and I that worked on this, we're really happy to see this. There's nothing more um, visual. You know, they say a, a picture paints a thousand words. There's nothing more visual than showing a grower or a producer or, or a regulator. This is what Hoplaton does. On mm -hmm. your left is the healthy, plumped up, full of cannabinoids. On the right, it's deflated. It either, uh, it most likely inflated first. So the way the way these trichomes develop is that the the outside the gland itself the head is inflated first, so it's ready to go, and then it's it's the cannabinoids start to fill it up. Mm. But if you've got a situation where the cannabinoids are not filling it up, you know that it's it's oh, wow. it's it's forty percent less, then this this thing will start to collapse. Right? There's no there's no oxygen or no there's no support within those within those so-called hot air balloons. I use the term hot air balloon to describe this. So these are dried, these are dried flowers now. And so on the left, you can see the drying does not impact uh, the structure of the of the trichome gland or the head. It's intact because the cuticle is really strong. But on, on the right, where you've got hoplite infected, because it hasn't inflated completely, it's getting to be like a flat tire. You know, there's no air in there to begin with. But then when you start drying these, these um, trichomes down, you see this shriveling effect. Um, it's quite dramatic. Yeah, so that's really cool because when I first saw this, I thought that, well, I mean, this is indicative that if you have a shriveled up trichome, it's not going to be producing as many cannabinoids. But what you're saying is that this is just showing that it hasn't been filled with those actual cannabinoids. So it's that's that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, because the plant's going to go ahead and, and create this this cavity, you know, in order to in order to prepare itself to to produce the cannabinoids. And usually, the the cannabinoid production starts when the stalk, which is you know the bottom, starts to elongate, and that's been shown by by previous studies. So when the stalk elongates, that's when this cavity starts to fill up. But now mm. you've got a hop laden infected plant; it's not producing as much cannabinoids, and so it doesn't fill up. Oh, yeah. And then when you dry it you get this effect sort of you're looking at a plump you know a plump grape on the left and a raisin uh, on the right wow yeah no and these are fantastic images for the very fact that we were talking about like it's it's latent it's not always obvious if you were looking at a plant um that it's that it's got any issues with it maybe not until you take it to the lab and, and get it tested but if you zoom in like you have well here it is yeah so I think now we can kind of transition into talking about, well, we've established the problem. What do we do about it? So if you were a grower and you you suspect that you have an infected plant, what are your options? Right. So there's there's many things growers can do. I mean, the first thing they need to do for sure is confirm that they've got hop latent. So whatever plant they're dealing with, uh, most likely it's a flowering plant because that's usually when you see it and they send it off for testing. The first thing would be to work backwards and try to figure out where did where did I get my my clones from from for that particular plant or that particular genotype? What did I did I grow it indoors? Did I purchase it from someone else or did I start it from seed? Uh, and once you sort of work backwards, you can say to yourself, all right, let's assume it came from clones within your own facility. That means the mother plant definitely has hop latent. Mm. So you work backwards, you then test your mother plants, uh, depending on how big they are and so on. We can we can talk about sampling strategies, but you test your mother plant. 
And obviously, if the mother plant is infected, um, the, the bad news is that I would say it's got to be it's got to be thrown away. You've got to get rid of it. Um, there's really no proven ways right now to to rescue a, a plant that has hop latent in it. I mean, we, we've talked about meristem culture and tissue culture and so on. It's possible, but it hasn't been demonstrated uh, on a, on a high level on a high scale that you can you can rescue a mother plant that's got hop latent. So if you've proven that it's your mother plant, then obviously you get rid of that. Mm. Um, the, the other possibility is that it picked it up um, when the plant was in veg. So let's say you're vegging on a table and if you're using hydroponics, then you've got water or nutrient solution moving between plants. Uh, we've shown and others have shown that it can move with water, with recirculating water. And so the, a veg plant that's, that's maybe two weeks old could potentially have picked up hop latent through the root system and and the, the viral then makes its way into the plant that way. And then, of course, the last alternative is a seed. If you started from seed, uh, you didn't test the plant that came off the seed, it could be that that that, that gave rise to your um, infected flowering plant. So, so it's it's a it's a detective sort of a, a detective process or you know a, a process of elimination, deciding where where did it come from. You, you need to know that. That's number one. Yeah, and I think you kind of answered my next question, but I think it's a good good thing to hammer home. There really doesn't seem to be any sort of treatment or kind of remediation options available yet, right? Yeah, if you've got a heavy, heavily infected or even an infected mother plant. Um, now, you know, people have tried and people are trying taking cuttings from different parts of the of the big plant. So you could right. you could definitely do that. You could take them from the top, the actively growing, you could take it from the side, the bottom. But then you have to go through and test all of those to see if by chance, and really it is chance, if by chance you were able to get a clone that was free of, of hop latent. You know, when the viral gets in, and, and we can discuss this now, the first place it goes is down into the roots. Right. So let's say let's say um, I infected it through a cutting. I, I went with my tools and I transferred some sap onto a cut surface. And uh, the first place it goes is down into the roots. And that takes about two weeks. So let's say two weeks after uh, it was introduced, it goes down into the roots. And then from the roots, it, it's moved upward. And the reason it's moved upward is it, it sort of follows the flow of, of sugar, start uh, sugars that are being produced uh, by photosynthesis in the plant. And that usually is towards the actively growing shoots, which are the young shoots. So you'll find it in the young shoots probably around four weeks mm -hmm. after that in, initial infection occurred. And then it starts moving around the plant. So let's say by, by six weeks, it's now pretty much everywhere. But there are cases where, you know, a branch gets missed. You've got yeah. a, a disease plant and all of a sudden, you know, a, a healthy branch on one side. And I think I have a photo uh, in that presentation. We can come back to it in a second. For some reason, that branch got missed. If you're lucky enough, you can get a, a, a cutting out of that, a clone out of that, and you may have escaped um, hop latent at least in, in, that particular, in that particular plant. Um, so it's not a uniform distribution throughout. And so... Some producers will go through and take clones from various parts of the of the mother plant in the hopes that they can find uh, a few that don't have the uh, the viral. And that is effective. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, it obviously they all have to be tested. Right. They all have to be tested because you don't know for sure whether you lucked out or whether it's dormant, like it's it's there but it hasn't had a chance to 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 grow out and and replicate now. Mary stem culture, which is taking the very, very, very small tip 
uh, does seem to work in many other plants. So in potato, particularly here in Canada, uh, when we had an outbreak of potato spindle tuber viroid back in the 80s, uh, the government stepped in and said, nobody's going to be able to grow any potatoes unless they all came from a tissue-cultured meristem plant. And mm -hmm. so they started this meristem program throughout Canada. And uh, only growers that purchased these plants that were propagated through tissue culture could grow potatoes. And as a result, it got wiped out. Like it, you can hardly mm -hmm. find that in most commercial fields because of this rigorous insistence on using clean plants. Now, with cannabis, it's hard to do because uh, A, we have to show that those plants are clean from meristem culture. And B, not everybody's going to want to buy from one source, right? Everybody's got their own preferential source for plants. And so there's no guarantee that um, the plants you buy will be free of hop latent unless they're tested. All right. So yeah, that's that's a good segue. So let's talk about testing. Because one of the things that you mentioned in, in your presentation is that sort of the only real way to get rid of an infection if you have it in your facility is sort of this systematic testing and removing of infected plants. So I'm wondering, like, sort of what is the protocol for that? Um, you know, which plants should be tested? And, um, you know, is it all of them, just the ones that sort of appear sick, just the ones that are kind of in the same vicinity as some confirmed positives? What are sort of the best best practices in developing that testing protocol? Yeah, so definitely um, systematic. a systematic approach has to be taken and one that where the, the grower is, is taking a lot of records um, so they can follow through what, what exactly happened from, from A to B to C. The first place definitely is starting with the mother plants uh, and testing those to see if they're clean and, and uh, whether they may accidentally have picked up hot latent viroid. I would say the second place to test would be your veg, your veg plants. Um, somehow, if some viroid got through and um, wasn't detected in the mothers, you may see symptoms in that veg plant. Sometimes they are a little bit shorter, may have slightly curled leaves. So again, being very vigilant about what the plants are supposed to look like and, and most growers have had years of experience. They may look at that plant because, you know, that that's not growing right. Did I did I not fertilize it properly? Is it not getting enough light? It may actually be infected with, with hop latent. Um, I would not test necessarily flowering plants, um, only if you want to make sure that you've got it or don't have it, because at that stage, it's too late. Right. There's not a whole lot you can gain from testing a flowering plant. You're going to get rid of it anyway. It's mostly the mothers and the, the veg plants. Now, clones, when you test clones, they should be rooted. So if you get a bunch of unrooted clones from someone and, and you want to get it tested for hop latent, I would suggest rooting them first. Because if they are infected, the first place the virus is going to go is back down into the roots. And we've shown uh, when you've got a two-week-old rooted cutting, that if it came from a mother plant, you will find it in the roots 100%. Hmm. You may not find it in the leaves. The leaves that may originally have had the viroid and you may have tested it and found a negative i would say root it get the roots coming out take little samples off those send them off if they come back negative it's negative if it comes back positive throw it out wow okay so and a lot of people do import a lot of clones and most of them tend to be not rooted root them first and then test them and then get rid of the ones that um, turn out positive the beauty about the root sampling is it's it's a more sensitive at that, at that early stage, because the roots are starting to accumulate that viroid. Later on, when that plant grows up, so let's say it's now six weeks old, 
you can find the viroid everywhere in the leaves, right? We talked about how it, it takes two weeks to go down, four weeks, and then six weeks. So there's a recent uh, paper that came out that, that basically said you can test leaves. It's not a problem. Only if that plant is old enough, you know, it's right. six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks old, and it's had a chance to spread the viroid in the leaves. If it's an early plant, a clone or a veg plant, go for the roots because that's where you'll, you'll very likely find it because it hasn't had a chance to move out into the foliage as yet. Right. And then I guess further complicating things, because I know that some experiments that we've done or our team has done, we've seen plants where it, it's detectable in the roots, but never actually makes it up into the upper leaves, um, right. which could be, um, you know, could be tolerance that we're looking for. But like you said, if it's in a hydroponic system and those roots are in the water and that water is circulating, well, there you go. Now you have your asymptomatic spreader, right? Yes, yes. And so you're bang on in terms of um, it does, because it does go down to the roots, we can use that as a consistent method for testing. However, it's not to say that um, it's necessarily going to move into, into the leaves. Now, everything we work with is highly susceptible. So mm -hmm. I've never uh, seen a situation yet where um, it's in the roots, but eventually doesn't uh, find its way into the leaves. So that, you're right, it could be a tolerance or a resistance, which makes sense. The plant is fighting it. it it's keeping it localized, doesn't want it to, to spread up into the leaves and flowers. But, you know, environment plays a pretty important role in terms of how it moves from the roots into the leaves. So we find, for example, when you flip, or when you, when you turn the lights into 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark, yeah. that plant that only has viroid in the roots, all of a sudden, will start showing it really fast in the leaves and mm. the flowers. So again, it may be that that flow of sugar that's being triggered by the by the uh, the flipping of the lights that's causing this movement back into the into the upper leaves. So I'm doing some experiments now where I'm putting plants in the darkness, I'm putting plants in full light, um, I'm putting plants at different temperatures, trying to see if I have a root infection, what's it going to take? to move that viroid up into the uh, into the upper part of the plant. Because maybe we can play around with the environment. You know, environmental conditions might might uh, reduce the, the rate of spread, as well as genetics. Yeah, because I would think particularly in the cases of a mother plant, right, where if you're taking cuttings from the canopy, from the leaves, even if it were to have an infection in the roots that never got to those leaves, could produce clean clones. Yes. Theoretically, yes. but and I do that, want to that, go back to sort of like that testing protocol you said, where, you know, you said start with the moms and to test them. So what are we looking at for sampling? Like, I guess it's kind of a good point. Should you be testing the roots or the actual branches that you're going to be taking cuttings from everything? What, what do you yeah. recommend? So right up until this past year, the entire industry was, was sampling leaves. Yeah. And it, it, it worked. It worked. There's nothing wrong with what they were doing all these years, all the testing labs that I know of were either taking leaves or petioles. Petioles seem to be a little better. Petioles are the, the connections that the leaves have to the stem because again, it's the vascular system, right? It, it allows the movement of the sugar in there. And they were, and they were finding hop late. And all the reports that we have pretty much are based on leaf testing. Hmm. Um, so a big mother plant, um, they're saying four samples, um, either four samples through uh, various parts of the plant, uh, either separate or you can combine them. And that'll give you one composite sample and maybe save you a bit of money because you're not testing individual samples. You're combining the tissues into, into one tube. Um, the root system on one of these larger moms is harder to get to. 
because really the ideal sampling location is is the root system more towards the central stem. Mm -hmm. And so digging out in there and causing some potential damage uh, may not be worth, worth the effort. So on, on a larger mom, and I'm going to say uh, two months and older, you're probably okay with, with taking these four leaf samples or petiole samples and combining them. Anything younger than that, where it, it's still potentially in the roots and maybe hasn't spread uniformly, I would go with the with the uh, roots. And so that would definitely be clones. It would definitely be veg plants and potentially plants that you're trying to save for future mums that are six, maybe eight weeks old, go for the roots. On an established mother that you're, is in your nursery, you've had for maybe three years, I don't know how long growers keep these plants, mm. the leaves will probably do a good job if, if your sampling is systematically done throughout the canopy. And how frequently? I mean, should you be testing monthly or just when you're taking cuttings? What's what's your advice there? Yeah, that, that's that's a good a good question. And I guess it's going to depend on on whether you've got the same moms that you're using over and over. In which case, I I wouldn't really sample them more than once a month. If it's an established mother, if it's a younger vegetative plant that grows rapidly and and you're just about ready to take it into flower, I would test it again after two mm -hmm. weeks from the first test. Um, just to see whether you may have missed something and it's 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 outgrown itself um, since. So, so it's going to vary from from two weeks to four weeks. I, I know some some growers like to sample every week just to be absolutely sure that they haven't missed, um, you know, a, a potential positive. Because I guess you know if you missed it, and that's going to go into the flower room, you've lost a lot of potential revenue by by not having tested that one plant as opposed to paying whatever it is, $50 for, for an extra sample. And so they may go, they may do it every week, but uh, I think every two weeks on actively growing plants and every four weeks or once a month on plants that are, that are larger and perhaps not, not growing as, as rapidly. Excellent. Um, and that would be, I'm sorry, say again, which ones would be roots, which ones would be leaves? So definitely the younger plants. So anything I would say younger than about six weeks, do the leaves, uh, excuse me, do the roots. Right. Because they're still growing. They're still developing root systems. They're still trying to move the viroid. If there are plants that are older, three months and older, the leaves should be fine. As long as there are multiple samples, right? At least four that are combined or set in separately. Um, and similarly for the roots, we find if you take three or four small root samples and, and combine them into one, that one result is good enough to tell you whether the plant's infected or not. And now is this same protocol applicable if you have an, a known infection or not? Like if you if you know you've got infected plants, do you up your testing or or what? Well, technically that infected plant shouldn't be uh, in your facility, but if you <laughs> if you've decided to keep it, uh, then definitely I would I would test it every couple of weeks. Well, no, um, not not necessarily if you kept it kept it, oh, but say. Oh. You know, I have a grow. I have a grow now. It's clean. I'm testing. Everything's coming back ne negative. Everything is great. Okay. But now I'm finding, oh no, a few plants over in this corner. Now they're infected. Right. Should I do more testing to make sure to kind of mitigate this spread somehow? Or well, if it's surely, if it's a definite positive, I would I would move it out. I would I would mm -hmm. move it into another room and then uh, decide what you want to do. Uh, don't leave it there. Now, um, it's interesting because I haven't seen any data yet to suggest that the viroid moves very effectively, you know, down, down the row, for example, if, if somebody's walking, you know, they, they say, well, if your clothes brush up against the plant, 
I don't know that that is sufficient damage to the leaf to, to move properly. It does for many viruses and viroids, but there may be data out there, but I haven't seen it yet. And the reason I say that is because I'm, you know, being, I've walked into facilities where they've got a few infected plants here, then everywhere. If this thing was moving with, with people brushing up against the plants, every damn plant in that location would be infected. And that's not the case. We're finding isolated spots here, there, and everywhere that may have been introduced through a, 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 a pruning tool. Sap, sap, the movement of sap is super important. So when you brush up against a plant, there really is no sap coming, being released or, or on your clothes that's going to react on a wound on another plant. But sap on your tools and sap on your gloves. So you've got obvious sap stuck to your gloves and you touch another plant and you damage it. That will transmit it. Mm. Damage is the key. The, the tissue has to be damaged. Uh, usually I think that uh, it has to be, the vascular system has to be exposed. In other words, there has to be a broken vein or a broken off leaf that allows that viroid to, to enter in. I think just putting the viroid on the surface of a leaf and letting it sit, I don't believe is going to cause an infection. Hmm. So you gotta have the wounding and you've gotta have the sap and water. So these plants could have picked it up if there was recirculating water that has the viroid in it and, and somehow uh, got into root contact. And then of course the viroid spread uh, within, the, uh, within the plant. So recirculating water is a problem because I haven't seen any treatments yet that work. So mm. even 100 degrees centigrade heating doesn't do it. Uh, UV doesn't do it. Fluorination doesn't do it. I, I don't know yet what treatments could be made to water to clean it up, recirculating water yet. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of companies working on that. And eventually we'll have a, an answer. But right now, you have to be super careful with water that's being recirculated from an infected uh, infected mother or plant. Wow. Yeah, that that seems <laughs> that seems like a massive issue. Now, in terms of that, so in addition to testing plants, you should you should be testing your water and your surfaces, your equipment, things like that as well. Yeah, so um, definitely, if you're recirculating and you know you've got a high incidence of hot bleeding, you're almost guaranteed to to have it in the in the recirculating water. Now, we got to remember it's not pure water that has the viroid. It's little flakes of small pieces of roots and organic matter and debris that's come off the roots that's sloughed off that's carrying the viroid in it. Um, and so when the water is recirculated, there's still it's still got a little bit of particles and stuff in it that uh, potentially has the has the viroid in it. Uh, we've seen it on surfaces uh, on, for example, on flood tables. So if there's a plant that's sitting on a table and and there's water, you know, up against the roots on the bottom you can find hot latent on the surface of that table, as well as, of course, on tools. For that, cleaning bleach does a pretty good job, or, or Vercon, uh, 2%, because that comes in direct contact with, with the water or the, you know, the film of water that's on the table. Um, it, it can eliminate hot latent viroid quite effectively on, on tools and on the, on the surfaces of tables. But uh, in terms of what does it do to sap, if there's infected sap, um, I don't know how effective Vercon or bleach are at this stage uh, where you've got visible sap being moved from plant to plant, whether whether those two chemicals will completely eradicate uh, the viroid. But for surfaces, there's definitely materials out there that will work. Excellent. That's good news. Now, in terms of testing, um, 
I think you mentioned before PCR, qPCR is the gold standard for testing. Is that the option that you recommend? I would say so. And most labs realize that and they've geared their their methodologies to test using um, qPCR. Yeah. There's really no other um, effective rapid test that will will, will work for hop ligand. Excellent. All right. Well, we covered a lot, Samir. Um, I don't want to be definitely mindful of your time. Um, so is there anything we missed? Don't give up hope. <laughs> just like just like everything else and just like COVID, you know, and, and there's people obviously that don't necessarily believe in COVID, but I think we've got a good handle on it now. Not to say that it's not going to be a problem later on, but we've got a good handle. We, we put a lot of good science into it. They, we threw a lot of money at it. And and it's under control. With hop laden, I think it's a similar thing. We we put some good science into it, get some money going uh, that can fund research and, and help companies develop products that that will work. Uh, growers uh, in general are very astute. When they know they've got a problem, they'll find every means they can uh, to address it. And I think they're starting to do that. They're starting to see, for example, that certain um, strains or certain genotypes are more resilient than others. They're going to start using that in their crosses, right. or they're going to start using that to to um, to produce. If they know it's in the seed, they're going to be doing seed testing, or they're not going to be buying seed from a location that hasn't necessarily certified it. If they're buying clones, they're going to be a little bit more careful about the sources of their clones. If they've got an outbreak, they're going to do everything they can, uh, including people wearing pro proper clothes and wearing gloves and sanitizing their tools and so on. And when you use a combination of these things, um, it's it's not going to go away, but but it's it's manageable. The more you understand, obviously, the more you can manage. But um, I know numbers now are scary. Ninety percent of mm. of California production has it. Fifty percent in Canada. Um, it's those are scary numbers. But I think as we learn more about this thing, uh, you know, in a couple of years, maybe I won't have to do these uh, webinars or podcasts anymore because it, it's not going to be important. I mean, two years ago, I think you mentioned 2018 when I spoke, Hop Layton was never on the radar. I mean, right. Fusarium was. Yep. Fusarium was big. Uh, now, and powdery mildew and botrytis, which are still big. Now it's Hop Layton. 2025, hopefully, it's, it's under control. Excellent. Well, as long as we have people like you doing doing this work and sharing the information, uh, it's the best we can hope for. Thank you. Um, Zamir, before I let you go, um, if there are any other resources about this uh, that you would like to share or um, websites or anything where people can visit to learn more about the work that you're doing or maybe even just work that you're, uh, you're a fan of that you think would be uh, apropos of the conversation, please share. Yeah, so I think I think my latest obviously is the is the CanMed twenty three, and I think there's there's the most recent data um, is presented there. Um, definitely, medicinal genomics has a has a good website for a lot of information pertaining to hop latent viroid, as well as Tumi Tumi Genomics has a really nice website that you can visit that has a lot of information on management and symptomology and so on. And both of these labs obviously uh, offer testing services, and, and there's others. There's other labs out there that. Um, that are obviously getting onto the bandwagon. There's a tremendous amount of information that's being put together on these websites in the last year. I'm, I'm really impressed with, with how much uh, knowledge we have, you know, taken maybe from other systems. And I think the really important part here is, is the sharing. The sharing of information has been phenomenal. I mean, 
Uh, you guys do a good job of this. Other, you know, Tumi Genomics has done a good job. We're trying to do the best, but we do that anyway, right? At the university, we like to share. But to see these other companies get involved is is really gratifying. Uh, nobody's hiding anything. Nobody's keeping things to themselves. They're all out there discussing. And, and that's the way we're going to make progress. And I, I think we are making progress. So I, I'm hopeful. Yeah. I may, be out of a job. I may be out of a job in two years, but uh, <laughs> but I think uh, there's I think lots to do. I think you'll be all right, Samir. Uh, you, always have a, <laughs> you always have a home at CanMed, that's for sure. All right. <laughs> all right, Samir. Thanks again uh, for joining us. And uh, hopefully we're going to be doing another one of these soon, talking about Total Eastern Mold. So uh, right. folks, okay. stay tuned for that. Um, but until then, uh, thanks again. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Samir Kunja. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Fino Express. Our next episode drops August 1st, that's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please like, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you use to listen or watch us. Uh, also, please check out canmetevents.com to learn more about our annual Innovation and Investment Summit. You can also view videos of all the past CanMed presentations in the CanMed archive at canmedevents.com. I invite you to join our CanMed community group on Facebook to interact with other cannabis professionals. And lastly, please follow us on social media. Just search for CanMed Events. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.